for His presence to dwell with His people in ways that are observable and experienced and recognized and, and inspire awe and amazement from our lives at the presence and the effect of the presence of God in our lives. We have spent some time in the last few weeks highlighting the need that we have in our lives. And I hope that's getting awakened in your own heart. A need for the presence of God. God, I need to see you dwelling in the midst of my life, in my own heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, in my family, in the activities of my life, in the church, in this generation. God, I need to see that. The body of Christ needs to see that. The church that we are a part of needs to see your glory. You know, the Bible encourages us, and Peter taught on this last week, that we're to pursue the presence of God. Put this passage up. Let's let it sit there. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. That's the Bible. Let's not let something else of our own ideas or, may I, might I say today, some, maybe some bad experiences that, that we've seen or heard others have had. Usually we haven't had a whole lot of bad experiences, but we've heard somebody else went to that church and had that bad experience. And, and we don't know if we want to pursue that in our own. We don't know if we want to pursue that experiential dynamic. You know, and we almost develop an attitude toward experiences as though, well, that just cheapens this whole Christian life, doesn't it? I mean, come on. God just God wants us to love Him. God wants us to pursue Him. He doesn't want us to, to pursue experiences. Um, I don't know where that logic comes from. It's not biblical. That line of thinking, I, I can actually, I'm going to cover some of it today, and you'll see where it comes from. I think it comes as an, an apologetic for lack of an experience. Well, I'm not experiencing God a whole lot, so if I can stomp all over experience, I can make it sound as though you're not supposed to have Him anyway, so I'm staying away from that. It cheapens the whole Christian exchange. Uh, well, if God is the giver of experiences, wouldn't He want us to receive them? If God is the giver of His presence, and He's the one who delineates, and His presence is not the same all the time everywhere for everybody. And He chooses to show up in your life or my life in any particular setting and make Himself more real through a particular effect on our lives. Wouldn't He want us to experience that? He certainly would not want us to be saying, well, I'm not pursuing experiences. Uh, you know, I'm glad my children are eager to receive the things that I want to give them in their lives. I'm glad they don't take the things that I have, have taken time to think about and have uh, gone out to purchase or it's something special or it's a thought. I'm glad they don't just throw that on the side and say, oh, Dad, that doesn't mean anything to me, Dad. Only you do. Uh, well, I appreciate that I mean something to you, but that meant something to me as well. I went out of my way to create it and give it to you. And God is that way. God didn't have to give us any form of, of awareness of his presence. He chooses to do that. As a matter of fact, if you'll, if you'll be honest with the Bible, God doesn't make us fully aware of His presence, does He? He chooses not to do that. I mean, He, he makes clear that it would kill us if He did. So God limits what He does, but God does choose to do something when we want to be receptive to it. And I want to address today the perceiving and the receiving of the presence of God. Our, our ability to perceive the presence of God. Where is it? What is it like? And for us to receive it individually into our lives. Now, I think I put a question in your introduction there. 
says, how is my anticipation of God's presence affecting my faith walk? And we preach and teach, it is to be lived and realized. It is for the purpose of application. So when we talk about this subject of the presence of God, how, how is that affecting my faith walk? I'm walking in faith and you are too. If I could say this, I, I, I don't mean to draw a line here, but I think there's realities too. We live in these two realms of our life as Christians. I'm not a Christian. If I haven't given my life over to Christ as the Lord of my life, then I really don't live in two realms. But there is this, and really under, under Christ, we don't really live in true. We live in one realm. But there are dimensions to it. There's our personal dynamics and there's kingdom dynamics. When you wake up in the morning, you face personal dynamics. There are ambitions in your life. There are goals. There are dreams. There are things that you're aiming at and you're going after. And you live right there. It's like a battlefront. You push to the edge of it. And let's see where it can go. What can happen next in my life? And we have personal categories that mean a lot to us. And those are things that we're, we're spending our time and our energy and our effort on those things. There are relationships in our own personal lives that mean something to us. We get up, we think about them. They affect the way we feel. Our moods are affected by them. The life that we're experiencing is touched by relationships. And we're, we pray about that. We think about that. We devote our attention to it. There are struggles that we face in our lives. There's weaknesses that dwell in this body. There are struggles that come because we live in a fallen world. Things don't always go right. People affect us. In bad ways many times. There are jail cell issues, as we talked about a few months ago, that, that we battle with, we've been contending with for years. In all of those places, how is this subject of the presence of God touching them? We don't want to put a container around issues that God wants to bleed over into everything that we're about. The presence of God should be touching those issues. Our pursuit of the presence of God, our expectation of the presence of God, our invitation and our desire for the presence of God in those settings, it should be affecting those areas. Our thoughts about the kingdom of God. Here we are this morning, and we're living our lives on the battle lines of the kingdom of God moving forward. Moving forward in our own hearts to where we're finding God attractive and delightful and captivating and alluring, and we run hard after Him and we enjoy Him. He's an expression of worship because we're enamored with Him. We're amazed by Him. There's fresh dazzlement in our thoughts about who God is. Not only that, but, but there's a front-line issue of, of how the kingdom of God and the gospel is being advanced into the world. Is it capturing new territory? And by that I mean, is it, is it traveling into new hearts? There's some folks that are here, here even this morning, that are here just have, that have recently in the last few months come to a place of faith in the person of Christ. That, that's the kingdom of God has come. Remember the announcement? We're announcing the kingdom because we bring this conversion of the kingdom into people's lives. We live at the battlefronts of that. Whether you are sharing your life within your own home with family members or neighbors or, or people at work or strangers, somebody who walks into an alpha meeting, the kingdom of God is coming. And you and I are a part of that. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I'm, I'm getting more and more awakened by God for a, a desire that in my generation, in my life, that there would be a revival of, the, of, of God's presence and power and activity. That You know, you read historically about revivals. Not every generation experiences one. 
many people live their life at a, a, a nine-volt battery level of the power of God. They experience the power of God to a degree. This is not negating. This is not stomping on the work of God that's taking place in many places and churches. But revival is, it is the kingdom on steroids. Right? It, is, it is the kingdom happening in amazing ways. And, you know, I I don't want to just read about that. I want to experience it. I want to see it. I want to see God breaking out in our lives in incredible ways. Now, all those issues, whether they're kingdom battlefronts or personal battlefronts, this topic is relevant to all of them. The presence of God radiating into those categories, touching, animating those categories, breathing fresh air upon them, providing fuel to a fire in each one of those places is critical for us. But we have to address a reality here today that we live in a time where people, particularly the church, has a difficult time perceiving and receiving the presence of God. And I think that's just a fact that if we're going to move forward in this category, we have to face the hill that we might have to climb. A.W. Tozer says this in in a book called The Pursuit of God. I think if you're a Christian and you haven't read The Pursuit of God, uh, I don't know how to insult you properly to motivate you. (laughs) Perhaps one of the finest books you will ever read as a believer. It's small. It's not intimidating. uh, But it is a, a very worthy read. This is a thought from Mr. Tozer. He says, God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. Conscious experience. It is more than doctrine to be held. The greatest fact of the tabernacle was that Jehovah was there. Remember God said, build me a dwelling place. What made that place unique was not its ornatement. It was not uh, that it belonged to particular people. It was that God's presence was there. A presence was waiting within the veil. Similarly, The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. The type of Christianity which happens now to be the vogue knows this presence only in theory. A.W. Tozer is writing, this is probably the 50s when this message is being given. 1950s. It fails to stress the Christian's privilege of present realization. According to its teachings, we are in the presence of God positionally. And nothing is said about the need to experience that presence actually. The fiery urge that drove men like McShane is wholly missing. Ignoble contentment takes the place of burning zeal. We are satisfied to rest in our judicial possessions. And, for the most part, we bother ourselves very little about the absence of personal experience. Now, the question for us is, remember, remember the era in which we live? We live biblically in the time span which the, the prophet Joel spoke about. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. We're talking rivers here. We're not talking drops. This is not an eyedropper from heaven. This is, this is an era in which God wants to pour out his spirit. 
the description given in the scriptures of our encounter with the Spirit of God was that we would be we would be deluged, overwhelmed, baptized in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now my question is, where's the heat? Right? I mean, it's been cold outside lately. We've been, we've been burning fires in our fireplace quite a bit lately. And, and when I get a really good one going, you guys, how many of you guys are fire makers in your home? You, you know. It's a labor of love, isn't it? It's an art, isn't it? Yeah. Now, the rest of you don't know what I'm talking about, but start, try and stay with it. You're just sucking off the heat that we're creating, okay? You can get the fire going to such a degree. I mean, you can get this wimpy little fire. It's got some flame going to it. There's no heat coming out of this thing. But when you get the coals down in the bottom of that fire going, and you just got to throw a log on there, and that, that thing bursts into flames, I mean, now you have built an effective fire. But when you got to move that fire around, and I almost burn my hands off trying to get in there just to move stuff around, and the heat of that thing makes an impact. See, where, where there's real heat, there's effect of real heat in our midst. And, you know, we have this idea, we have the theory of the presence of God. Oh, all of us can read a few passages and agree with the idea that there is the presence of God. But I ask the same question with Mr. Tozer. Where's the heat? Where's the, where's the men like McShane? Where are the, the men who, who had in their hearts a burning zeal for the kingdom to come? An insistence won't take no for an answer. We're going to wrestle with God until He blesses us. We're going to touch the hem of His garment. Get out of the way. Where's the intensity? See, that's the effect of the presence of God in our life. It brings fire. It doesn't just bring beard-stroking thoughts. That we think, oh, you know, the kingdom of God and the presence of God. Well, you know, positionally, we have everything. Doesn't the Bible say that? We have everything. The Bible does say that. The same Bible that says that says that you may not be experiencing all you should be experiencing. Don't confuse the two. This 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 is the fault of imbalanced teaching in the body of Christ where, where one truth gets preached while somebody stomps on another truth in order to make their point. You know, don't do that. The Bible doesn't do it. The Bible says two things that makes our mind go, okay, wait, wait, how can those two things be true at the same time? It says that all over the place. If you're not comfortable with the concept that God's bigger than we are and he does things that takes us a long time to even get on the same page with him, much less figure out, If you're not comfortable with that, you'll force the Bible always. You'll be always doing this. Forcing the Bible into one side or the other. That's bad theology. And what it does for us is it creates these ideas like this. The presence of God is a positional truth. Well, there are positional dynamics to the presence of God in Scripture. We're seated with God in heavenly places. Well, you know, there's a reality about that. There's an effect on my belief and my walk about that. But I'm also standing in front of you today, aren't I? There's a tension there. And I have to be okay with that. There are truths that, that when, you, when you come to Christ, you've received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's true. At the very same time, there are dynamics to God that are foreign and unexperienced and yet to be received. All throughout Scripture, these things go together. And, and, and we are missing in the body of Christ. We are missing in the age of the church today the sense of fire and urgency. How many of us know somebody today that's battling with an issue of sin that is ruling the day in their life? It's, it's eating them up. You know, the church is beginning to address those issues by just saying, well, you know, it's almost like accepting that that's 
well, that's just, you know, that's just the way that's going to be and we'll just try to put the best band-aids we can on it. Where, where's the fire in the people of God that says, no, that will not stay that way. That will change. The glory of God will be seen in that person's life. That person will go free. And we believe it and there's fire in our hearts to believe it. Listen, that's, that's an indication of the presence of God has visited us, has been near to us. Not some accommodating lifestyle that we've created. Mr. Tozer says, we bother ourselves very little about the absence of personal experience. Are you, are you bothered by that issue? You're bothered by the experience that you see in Scripture, the encounter with God, the effect of it on people's lives versus your own? Does it bother you? Is it something you complain to God about? You want to complain about something? Complain about that. God, I am complaining today because I am not experiencing who you are sufficiently in my life. I think God welcomed that complaint. Complain about the weather. Uh, complain about how much money I got and don't got. Uh, complain about more of God. I, I think you're on the right page in that moment. But, you know, are we bothered by that? Or have we departed from high expectations in this category? We just have departed from that. We don't expect God's presence. We don't think biblically we should expect it. We have grown to believe that not experiencing God in many, many multiple ways with power and effectiveness is normal. Have, have we begun to believe that and accept that? And if so, why? And I want to give us a little bit of an understanding today of the hole that I think all of us here today have to dig out of in order to get on the, the same level with God today. So I'm going to back us up a little bit his, historically. We've got a history lesson here today. I put a, a heading called Deism in your outline today. And let me give you a little bit of historical background on Deism. Deism is not a bad word until it gets associated with the movement that it really was a part of uh, a few hundred years ago. Deism is a religious philosophy and movement that became prominent in England, France, and the United States in the 17th and 18th centuries. Deists typically reject supernatural events, prophecy, miracles, and divine revelation prominent in organized religion, along with the holy books and revealed religions that assert the existence of such things. Instead, deists hold that correct religious beliefs must be founded on human reason and observed features of the natural world. This is what John Orr said. He said, both theists and deists, there was a distinction, which we would identify with theists and not deists, both theists and deists asserted belief on one supreme God, the Creator, and agreed that God is personal and distinct from the world. But the theists taught that God remained actively interested in and operative in the world which He had made whereas the deist maintained that God endowed the world at creation with self-sustaining and self-acting powers and then abandoned it to the operation of these powers, acting as second causes. Now, uh, if you go back in history, you're going to find there are some very influential individuals who, if they weren't proclaimed deists, they had bought into their ideas and they sure sounded like them when they spoke. And, and what's interesting is, if you're not aware of this, you don't realize that a distinction is being made. The idea 
that there is a personal God who created everything. Everybody agrees on that. So when you go back, because this is, this is influential in England and France and in, in Western Europe, and it's about to be express mailed to, the, to America into the colonies, and the individuals who are, they are laying the groundwork for this nation to become a nation, many of them are theists. Many of them are not theists. But they use all the same language. So when you read their writings, you think, ah, these guys were right on board. I mean, what's wrong with people today interpreting the Constitution? Don't they realize this is a Christian nation? Um, There were Christians who were part of that process. There were deists who, depending on their level of convictions, perhaps had departed from saving faith by what they believed. Let me give you an example in your outline there. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, obviously influential founding father, writer of much of the foundational documents for this country. Listen to this about Thomas Jefferson. The Jefferson Bible, or the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, as it is formally titled, was an attempt by Thomas Jefferson to glean the teachings of Jesus from the Christian Gospels. Jefferson wished to extract the doctrine of Jesus by removing sections of the New Testament containing supernatural aspects. Miracles and references to the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus are notably absent from the Jefferson Bible. The Bible begins with an account of Jesus' birth without references to angels, genealogy, or prophecy. The work ends with the words, Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. There is no mention of the resurrection. Now, you do understand from from a critical eye standpoint, without the mention of the resurrection, you have departed from Christianity. All you have now is a story of a great guy who lived a caring, wise, incredible life and died. Period. That's not the gospel anymore. Use Jesus Christ's name. Quote him. Say things about him. Say you believe that, that there's a creator out there who created all things and endued men with certain inalienable rights. Say all those things. Deny the resurrection and you're no longer a Christian. Now, I'm not sure how many of the founding fathers fell into that category and how far they went with their deism. But what they flirted with was, was, this is a philosophy that began. John Locke really helped form much of this and get it going. Thomas Paine, who wrote a book called The Age of Reason, who was influential to the founding fathers when the nation was being formed. The Age of Reason, this entire age of reason, of human understanding, of the intellect, of man's capacity began to be thrust to the forefront of human thinking. And what followed on the heels of that, this age of reason, was the Enlightenment that came and the Industrial Revolution and, and men like Benjamin Franklin, who no one can quite figure out where Benjamin really was in his faith. He kind of was all over the place. But he held to many of deists' views and used their terminologies. And in this age of Enlightenment, What happens theologically is God is moved from the center to man now being in the center. And God now is having to find another place in theology. He's not the centerpiece. 
And human reasoning begins to take over this dynamic. And this is the age in which we have emerged from. The Industrial Revolution, the Age of Enlightenment, technology, medical advancement. Sigmund Freud emerges during this period of time, much later than the Founding Fathers. But he emerges with an explanation for human behavior that now alienates God as well from that. And so you have God now on the edge and you have man at the center. And all these views are antagonistic to the subjective presence of God. Difficulty in believing in angels. Difficulty believing in miracles. Difficulty with a God who intrudes into human history. That's not what deists believe. Now, this, this, this is the philosophy that is supporting much of what you and I have grown up in. And um, there is this unavoidable secondhand smoke dynamic that happens. When you live in a culture where the culture smokes, even if you don't smoke, you smell like smoke. Your lungs have taken some of it in. If you were to be tested, there would be effect in you. If there was a way to test how much of deist philosophy is in us, I guarantee if there was a way to extract it out of our veins, uh, we'd all have some of it in us. And it would be affecting us. And it could be taking the edges off of our pursuit of the now presence of God in our lives because we've learned to do Christianity without it. It's been happening for hundreds of years. A Christianity where God doesn't have to show up in a way that, that nobody can explain, in a way that's unexpected, in a way that's not scripted, in a way that is beyond man's capacity to deal with his own problems. God doesn't have to show up that way. And that's the philosophy we've lived in for years. And I believe it's in the church. You want to see a classic example of it being in the church? Look at this thought. Due to the belief that God endowed the world at creation with self-sustaining and self-acting powers and then abandoned it to the operation of these powers, acting as second causes as Orr stated, classical deists saw no need for prayer. What was the need for prayer? God set the creation in motion and he backed away from it and and things are spinning and the stuff's happening and, and, you know, he's personal and he did it and he created it and there's a creator, we acknowledge that, but he's not stepping in. He's not intervening. There's no such thing as the now presence of God. There is the omnipresence of God and that's all there is. God is everywhere and he's observing everything. Well, why pray? If that's what you believe. Now, what's interesting, and I use this as case in point, Too much of the American church has long ago let prayer be a a dying trade. There were years ago when when churches were sustained and lived around prayer. If you read the, the older dead people who are writing in Christianity years ago, you will find they speak of prayer in a way to us that sounds foreign. It sounds uh, ridiculous. It sounds impossible. It sounds off the charts. Today, if we can just throw a few minutes at God, we can just pray for a few minutes. Well, you know, that, that shows us a lot about what we believe about prayer and its effectiveness. See, if, you, if I don't think prayer is going to do a whole lot, well, then why spend much time doing it? Where did I get the idea that prayer really won't do all that much? Well, I think it's secondhand smoke. I think I live in a world that has natural explanations for everything and it has pushed God out of the equation and He's not really all that necessary. We have medicine now. 
Uh, there's just issues that take place. There's governmental involvement. There's, there's all kinds of factors that we can appeal to. Let's run to that. Let's freak out as a church because we've got to make sure the right person gets elected because, you know, the destiny of our lives is all wrapped up in Congress. Do you, do you find any writings in the first century where anybody's freaking out about uh, Nero taking over? I mean, the emperors don't even get names, for goodness sake, in the Bible. They were killing Christians left and right. Listen, you and I might have to pay higher taxes next year. <laughs> but none of us are going to be killed by George Bush's guys. But yet for Christianity, that's central. That's critical. Let's form groups. Let's mobilize armies. We've got to make sure the right person gets in office. I'm just curious about these organizations. How well are you doing praying? I think we have substituted human activity for divine activity. We want to see all these great things take place, but we're at the center of it ever happening at a human level. Welcome to deism. See, we, we think we're not deists, but we've been influenced by deism. And therefore, we don't see the critical vitality that God show up and do something extraordinary. And I'm not just talking about on a global scale. I'm talking about on an individual scale, on a local church scale, on the city of New Orleans scale. Where is the emphasis on the presence and person of God showing up in our lives? Well, two questions that you and I have to conclude. The first one is, does God intrude in human history? Do you really believe that? Do you believe it's just not one natural cause after another natural cause after another natural cause? Or do you believe that God intrudes in history? That there are moments where God set the universe into spin, and there are moments where He steps into it and disrupts the natural sequence of events. And He does it in individuals' lives, and He does it in history. Do you really believe that? That that's the kind of God that we are worshiping and pursuing. And if I do believe that, do I expect Him to intrude in my life personally? I welcome the idea that God is an intrusive God. God butts in. God thrusts Himself into a situation and what looks like it was going to go that way until God put His foot right there and it went that way. And he does it on a corporate level and he does it on an individual level. Do I awaken in the morning with the idea that God could intrude today? I'm facing a situation. I'm overwhelmed. I, in my mind, I have imagined the course. I see where this is headed two months from now. I'm going to be bankrupt living under a bridge. I just know it. That's in my mind. Where is in my mind the God who intrudes into human history that I can call on Him and He could come and put His foot down and the course of history would change and go right? Do I believe in that God? I believe that He's going to do that personally in my life. See, everything doesn't have to be the course of America as a nation. No, and God's into that. But what about the course of Keith Collins as an individual? Isn't God into that too? I find he is biblically, and I can pursue him that way. Let's talk for a moment about perceiving the presence of God, this God who intrudes and the people who perceive him. 
Your outline, there's a passage there, and you can be turning to Psalm 46 while we read this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. That's an interesting that puts a, that puts an interesting weight, doesn't it? On the presence of God and on the pursuit of God as Peter talked about last week. The God who is so near whenever we call upon him. The question might be on is God near or is the question on are we calling upon him? Which one do we think is the weak link in the chain? I, I don't think any of us want to accuse God of not being near. I think the, the weakness would be, do I call on Him? Or am I a too deist influence that, well, things are what they are and they happen the way they happen and if I can't come up with a reason that I can overcome this or change this or do something, if I can't come up with that, then I just, I just have to live with it and, oh, God, help me now to help me to... Get through the suffering of what's, you know, you know, God, since you're not available, uh, now help me with a backup plan to all my best intentions. Now, where is the prayer that says, God, show up here? Show up in an intrusive way and disrupt the course of events that are about to unfold. In verse 8 of Deuteronomy 4. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules? so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. This is wonderful theology in these two verses. You see what gets set before the nation here? There are principles and presence. There is spirit and truth. All in this passage here. Do you realize Christianity, and modern Christianity in many settings, has decided to be Republican or Democrat in this category? We're either one or the other. We're either all over the presence of God, but we, we couldn't tell you a doctrine in the Bible. We're not enamored with the truths of God. We just want His presence. And then you've got another part of Christianity that, that loves the Bible, but couldn't tell you if God was in the meeting or not. But you don't find the Bible that way. The Bible is both. What nation is there? that has a God so near and has these principles and commands and truths. They have both of them in the midst of the people of God. So listen, we don't stomp on one here. I'm not going to stand up here today and say, listen, we just want all you guys to just close your Bibles. Let's just close them. You know, that's the problem with the church today is they love the Bible too much. They don't love God. No! That's not a problem. Now, maybe we don't love the presence of God, but the Bible's not the problem with that. We love the Word of God. It's the revelation of God. It leads us toward God. It accomplishes something in us that nothing else can do. So we need both. The principles of God. We need the presence of God. Psalm 46. Listen to this nearness of God in this passage. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Is God far off or is God near to His people? God is a very present help in trouble. And in His very presentness, He is a refuge and a strength. Therefore, 
Here's the impact of knowing that in our hearts. Therefore, we will not fear. You could fill that in with all kinds of things, right? Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and form, though the mountains tremble as it's swelling, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Listen, this whole psalm is about application of the idea of the presence of God. Now, if you're here this morning, are you afraid of something? You're here this morning fearful. You're a fearful person. You, you find circumstances to be things that, that you just, there's trepidation to go in this direction because that circumstance is a certain way. It's going to affect you a certain way. You're f- fearful about the future. You're anxious about what's going to happen in your life and how this is going to turn out in the end. You realize what we're preaching on right now has specific application to remedy that. When you begin this whole section here, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. And then he just kind of chases a sidebar comment for a moment. He goes from the presence of God to, I know we face problems. Kingdoms and nations totter. We get threatened. We're afraid of things happening in our lives. But listen, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And God is in the midst of her. God's in the city. God's in the city with us. God's behind the wall with us. Oh, but what if the enemy comes over the wall? What if my health becomes this? What if our finances go this way? What if God's in the city with you? And what if He's a God who intrudes in human history? Now, if He's not a God who intrudes in human history, then all you got is circumstances that you can cross your fingers and hope. They, and, hope. and you can come up with a reason as to why they can go in a different direction. But God is dwelling with His people. And when he manifests his dwelling with us, he changes the course of human events. And I need to know that, and I need to be convinced of that, and it needs to inform my prayer life. You know, the sad condition of the prayer life of the church in America today, it used to be that you could form, you could call prayer meetings and, and they could pack the church. Today you can't get anybody to come to a prayer meeting. Categorically, across this country, you can't get people to show up for prayer. You got mega churches, mega churches that can gather a big thing, put on theatrics, put on a nice show, maybe even do a decent job of, of preaching something from the Word of God. But you call a prayer meeting, and the 3,000, 10,000 people that showed up on a weekend, you can't get but a dribble of them to show up in prayer. What's up with that? Well, maybe we're part deist. We don't really think prayer is all that effective, so why do it? This is a terrible circle we're going to get in. Because the Bible says you have not because you ask not. So what happens when you stop asking? You stop having. And when you stop having, you, you're not going to get convinced that God intrudes anymore. You, you're, you're moving away from that idea. Because you stopped asking and stopped asking and stopped asking and you stopped seeing and you've stopped seeing. And now it becomes a self-perpetuating doctrine in your own life. Well, God doesn't do it. I mean, I've prayed, you know, and what we call prayer is this weak, non-persevering, lacking faith dynamic that we just, we hoisted a complaint before God. We call that prayer. 
and it didn't change. And so therefore, you know, we don't come back to that. We don't revisit it. The church needs to get recaptured by the idea that God intrudes in history. He is a God who is near to all who call upon Him. There is a presence of God that will intrude into our lives when we call upon the Lord and let His presence bring its effect in our lives. Now let me move through some broadening of our understanding of the presence of God because I think part of our difficulty with perceiving the presence of God is, is first in our lack of pursuit of it. And let's just be honest. We're busy. Uh, perhaps we have bad theology that's floating around in our lives. We don't believe the presence of God. We've kind of got part deism going on in us. We don't believe the presence of God is available today as it once was in the Bible. So encountering God that way is something we kinda, we've kind of removed that from our expectation. So we don't really pursue it because we don't really think it's there any longer. Or our own experience has informed us exactly the same way. I've, I've pursued the presence of God, you know, and nothing happened. I mean, so I, I just stopped. I just stopped. So based on our experience, we've redefined our pursuit. So our pursuit could be the first problem. But our second problem could be a biblically poor awareness of the presence of God. It's biblically poor. If I were to say, look, the presence of God. And you looked over there. What? What would you expect to see? What would be on your list of... Well, okay, I don't know what he just saw, but it could be this, or it could be this, or it could be this. What would you expect to see? How have we defined the presence of God? Could it be that the presence of God is manifest in ways that we're not looking for Him to be manifest, and therefore, when He manifests Himself, we miss it? Because we're, we're staring right here. You know, the presence of God goes off and... I don't know. No. Uh, I just, I just don't. I mean, I'm just not experiencing anything, you know. And we've learned to stare into a category to find the presence of God. But listen, Job 33:14 says, "For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it." Not that God doesn't come and do things. It's that we don't perceive that He is doing many, many things that He is doing. And there was a a point in the history of Israel where God spoke very little to the nation. It was a point in which Samuel was being raised up as a prophet. And when God shows up and speaks to Samuel, immediately, immediately, Samuel assigns the voice to a natural cause. Immediately. And He does it repeatedly. The voice of God comes. He reasons. I heard a voice calling my name. Got to be Eli. Runs in to go find Eli. Yes, did you call? Uh, No, my son. Goes back, lies down. Here's a voice again. (laughs) Got to be Eli. Runs again. I don't know how many times this guy would have done this. (laughs) So Eli finally wises up. I know it's not me. He thinks it might be me, but I'm not crazy. I know it's not me. See, process of elimination could be God. And you go back and say, yes, Lord, your servant's listening. See, God spoke. He didn't hear it. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus spoke about people, those who had ears to hear. Many people did not. The very presence of God took on bodily form, walked up and had conversations with people, confronted issues in their lives, spoke with wisdom. Some people walked away going, remember the Samaritan woman met Jesus at the well? She, was, she met the presence of God. 
And revelation came and she understood her life and she understood who God was and she understood the work that he was doing. She ran back into the city and she, like a crazy person, told everybody about her encounter. And yet other people encountered him and went off and told nobody and didn't know that he was anybody different than the postman. So you can, you can be around the presence of God and not know you're around the presence of God. And that can be a, a, a real problem. I think one of the things that uh, perhaps modern charismatic dynamics have perhaps furthered this problem. Now, let me just tell you, I am a modern charismatic. I believe in the fullness of the gifts of the Spirit. I believe all should be pursuing them and experiencing them. I believe in having experiences. I believe in the gifts that God gives. Uh, I not only believe in the gifts of prophecy and tongues, I, I have prophesied and I speak in tongues. And I encourage everybody here to pursue those dynamics. So this is not a knock on the Bible's presentation of what we should be encountering when we pursue God. But what we've done in this modern setting is we've created venues for those experiences. And I don't even think that's wrong either. But, you know, if you're not a student of, of church history and you haven't read your Bible carefully, and I say something to you about an altar call, do you understand an altar call isn't in the Bible anywhere? And it really is not in church history very much until you get up to about Charles Finney. The revivals that took place in the 1800s, you have some the opportunities for people to respond to God. And that's not wrong. I think that's fine. We lay hands on people. We find that in the Bible. People had hands laid on them. But you do realize that if I'm seated here today, I, I, don't, I don't need to wait for the Holy Spirit to get let out of a box this morning. You don't need to be sitting here going, I'm getting my guards down. I'm not listening. But in the moment that Matt starts playing and, and Keith says something about, we're going to have some ministry time now. Okay, officially we're on. Okay. All right, God. I'm looking for your presence now. God, where is it? Where is it, Lord? Oh, then altar. I'm going to come up to the altar because maybe it's up here somewhere. Uh, there's not a problem in coming forward. There's some good in doing some of those things. But did you realize that when you, when you were driving here this morning, the presence of God could encounter you? in a way that could exceed anything that happened this morning here. Did you realize that during worship, God could open your heart supernaturally to where you understood something that was being sung in a way that was like somebody pulled the curtain back and the grace of God suddenly took on a new dimension in your life. And it wasn't because someone taught or gave a good illustration. It's because the Spirit of God intruded into your life in that moment. And turned on a light, and you encountered God. See, I'm, I'm afraid we've created venues that have made us think that the presence of God's right here. I think it's maybe only in prophesying and speaking in tongues. I think that's the only place where we experience the presence of God. Well, can I say this? In the New Testament, that's a very common place to experience the presence of God. So you should not be ruling that out. But, but let me broaden the experience list here a little bit. I'm going to get some help from Mr. J.I. Packer an article he wrote, what is revival? He says, revival is God manifesting himself to his people, visiting them, coming to dwell with them, pouring out his spirit on them. And listen to the effects here of this manifesting. Quickening their consciences, showing them their sins, and exalting Christ in their eyes in his saving glory. In times of revival, there is a deep awareness of God's presence and an inescapable sense of being under His eye. 
spiritual things become overwhelmingly real and the truth of God becomes overwhelmingly powerful, both to wound and to heal. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable. Repentance goes very deep. Faith springs up strong and assured. Spiritual understanding grows quick and keen and converts mature in an amazingly short time. Joy overflows and loving generosity abounds. Christians become fearless in witness and tireless in labor for their Savior's glory. The manifesting of God's gracious presence in revival awakens them out of sleep and energizes them to serve their Lord in a quite unprecedented way. Indeed, they recognize their new experience as a real foretaste of the life of heaven where God will disclose Himself to them so fully that they will never be able to rest day or night from singing His praises and doing His will. Now, I want to walk through these quickly. Just look at the range of God showing up. Look at the categories. Where might you find God? Might you need to look around? Might your head need to turn left and right into many places where the presence of God could be touching your life in ways that I've never paid attention to that. I've never looked for God there. I'm going to go through some of his examples. I can't improve on them. Quickening their consciences. You remember the encounter that Moses has before the burning, burning bush and later on when God hides him in the cleft of the rock? The presence of God shows up. Do you remember Isaiah's encounter with the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6? Do you remember John's encounter with the, the risen, glorified Christ and he falls at his feet as a dead man? In that moment, men are in touch. They're conscious. They're aware of the greatness, the purity, and the holiness of God. See, when you become aware of that, when there's a sense of gripping consciousness, Inside of you, there's there's fresh sense of what is right, what is glorious, what is sinful. That awareness is the presence of God clarifying those issues for those of us who would be dead to those issues apart from Him. Showing them their sins. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable. Ever read uh, Psalm 38? Oh, Lord... Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. This this man is under the dealings of God. He feels to the very depth of his fiber the effect of God disciplining his life. This is an experience this guy is having. Now, I don't want to create a theology. I want to be honest here with the Bible, though. I don't want to create a theology that says when you're sick, it's it's caused by sin. We live in a fallen world and sickness can come without you volunteering for it. But, at the same time, people in the Bible were sick because of sinful reasons. So, again, let's not do one or the other. Everybody who hates that theology, and I hate that theology. People who think you're sick because you got faith and don't have faith and you got sin in your life. I just reject that. Well, you're rejecting part of the Bible when you do it, though. Because sometimes sickness can be related to an issue of faith and an issue of sin. It's not always. It should not categorically be responded to that way all the time, but it is in the Bible. And this guy here, if you read the rest of this, he's in bad shape. Now, he either is metaphorically describing how he feels or the guy is really sick. But he's attributing it to God's dealing with his life. And you might be experiencing God in the category. You might, if you turn your gaze from here to here, you might realize, oh my gosh, 
God, you're dealing with me. It is your presence dealing with me. And I feel this, this weight and this heaviness. I feel like rocks are crushing me. Your hand is on my life. That's the presence of God in your life. Well, I didn't think about that. I just kept telling myself, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, that's great. That's a Bible verse too. That's good. It doesn't rescue you from the fact that God who's not condemning you is squeezing the tar out of you. Because He will do both. Repentance goes very deep, exalting Christ in their eyes in His savoring glory. A deep awareness of God's presence and an inescapable sense of being under His eye. Spiritual things become overwhelmingly real and the truth of God becomes overwhelmingly powerful both to wound and to heal. Have you experienced this? Have you had God reveal something to you that just becomes a treasure in your heart? It becomes a fresh sense of God's nearness and His care and His love. I I put again in your outline this this quote from Sarah Edwards because it's a play-by-play of this event occurring. If you look halfway through the second paragraph there, In her experience in God, it says, Under a delightful sense of the immediate presence and love of God, these words seem to come over and over in my mind. My God, my all. My God, my all. The presence of God was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious of anything else. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ seemed a distinct, as distinct persons, both manifesting their inconceivable loveliness and mildness and gentleness and their great and immutable love to me. I seemed to be taken under the care and charge of my God and Savior in an inexpressibly endearing manner. And Christ appeared to me as a mighty Savior under the character of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, taking my heart with all its corruptions under his care and putting it at his feet. In all things which concern me, I felt myself safe under the protection of the Father and the Savior. Are are you afraid? Are you concerned? Do you feel unsafe? See, This is a God who intruded into this woman's life in a moment of encounter and began just to speak things that that sounded like it was echoing off the walls of her heart. My God, my all. My God, my all. And then it's the clouds removed and in her understanding she became more clear about the person of God and the person of Christ. And in that moment of encounter and meditation there was a reality of of the care, the kindness, the gentleness of God who cradled her life in His hands. And all of a sudden, there was an impact. There was an effect of the presence of God. She felt safe. Or perhaps she had not up to that moment. Where did that encounter take place? You know where it took place? By herself, in a time with God, alone. That doesn't mean it can't happen when somebody lays their hands on you. But you understand, you, you, you don't have to drive to an encounter with God. Now, maybe sometimes you will. And that'll be God. But she felt an urgency by God to get alone and there was an impact on her life. And God showed up in this category. Faith springs up strong and assured. And the presence of God shows up in in Peter's life. After the day of Pentecost, he goes from a man scared to a man bold. To a man who will stand in front of an audience and say what needs to be said without any consideration for the effect it may have on his life. What's happened to this guy? The presence of God has touched his life. 
What did it look like? What fell on him? It was an upper room encounter, remember? I mean, it's Acts chapter 2. We get a blow by blow for him. He walks out into the streets. God fell. He spoke in tongues. He experienced the greatness of God. And it left an impression on his life. Spiritual understanding grows quick and keen. Converts mature in an amazingly short time. Joy overflows. Psalm 21.6 For you make Him most blessed forever. You make Him glad with the joy of your presence. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Now, this is an altar call that we could pack the place with. If I just were to say, how many of you are, have been or are right now experiencing a lack of joy? Everybody but the liars would be up here. And then we'd have an altar call for them. All the liars remain in the back. The joyless people come up. Uh, how many of us have tried to fix joy with a screwdriver put to the wrong thing? Uh, you know, I'm not happy because this is going on or... Uh, we, we're not going to be able to do this this year. Uh, well, Christmas just won't be the same because of this. Or so-and-so's not doing this right. Or, or you know, we keep putting a screw on this thing. Like, How many of us stopped and backed away from our lack of joy and say, God, your word says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Am I having a problem with your presence in my life? Is that what it is? Am I lacking joy because joy comes from encountering you and all that you are and being enamored with it and drawn into it and on board with it and accepting of it and embracing and affected by. And in that exchange, I'm going to find cause for joy, reasons for joy, responses of joy coming up in my heart. See, but, but deists don't pursue God that way, do they? Deists take natural reasoning and saying, you know what, if we could just get our budget right, if my husband would just stop doing this, if my children were this way, right? Welcome to being a deist. Do you understand why I'm concerned about that? Because we don't pursue the presence of God. As though God could strangely show up into that situation in a way that no one can account for. Miraculously, personally, and affect me in a way that nothing around me changes. But there's joy in my heart. Because the Bible says, in your presence is fullness of joy. This isn't for the people in heaven. These are words for those of us who dwell on earth with all of its difficulty and problems. Loving generosity abounds. I don't have time to go through all these. Gordon Fee says, The Spirit of God is recognized as the invisible power creating or affecting a whole variety of realities. Matt, let me ask you to go ahead and come. I put several more examples in there that, that we don't have time to go through all of them. But you, you find God intruded in Exodus and He gave skill and abilities he filled uh, Oholiab and, and, I forget the other guy's name, Bezalel, with the presence of God. And they became skilled and intelligent and had abilities to do craftsmanship. I believe they probably already were craftsmen, but God came into their life, into their calling with his presence in a greater way. And they became even more skilled and more capable and more able. How many of us could really benefit if we believed the presence of God could infuse a greater capacity and ability in us? That's what the presence of God does. It intrudes. When, when Moses was leading the people and God said, Moses, it's not good. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and I'm going to put it on these guys. 
And they're going to help you to carry the burden together. Now, now do, you, do you go there in your mind? Do you realize that when the presence of God shows up, your capacity to carry a burden will change? Now, if I'm a deist, I just think, okay, what's in my backpack? It feels heavy. <laughs> get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. Now, that might be the wisdom of God, but don't default to that. Because it could be that God comes and says, pursue me and let my empowerment, my presence touch those areas of your life. You may find you're capable of a whole lot more burden carrying than you think you are. And I guarantee there's some here this morning just feel overwhelmed. This is a great time of year to be saying that, isn't it? And just we just we we live a maxed out life and then December comes. Ugh. It, is, it gets crazy, doesn't it? And if you're like me, you have a, a, a list of things that you that are dear to you in your life that, that get squeezed by all the other stuff that shows up. The things that are dear to you, 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 you want them to be a certain thing. Family memories and connecting in the midst of all this. You know, I I can default. I don't know how you are. I can default to sheer reason. I can be Thomas Paine Jr. Welcome to the age of reason. And I can start reasoning my way through. Okay, let me move this this way and that that way and this that way and that that way. It still looks bad. Uh, Let's do this and now this and that. God is nowhere to be found. And I'm not pursuing it. Calling upon the Lord who is near? No. Might God show up in all of our hecticness and all of our burdens and all of that, and why do you show up with His presence and manifest Himself in such a way that I find capacity that I didn't have apart from the God who intrudes in human history? Let's stand up together. we are in great need of pursuing your presence continually, always, in every setting, in every moment that we awake and are conscious. We have a God who says He is near to us. You've made us a people unlike any others. We are distinct, as Moses said, from all upon the earth who What nation, what people has a God so near whenever we call upon Him? Lord, that's who You've made us to be. That's who You desire to be in our midst. Lord, help us from what we've just read in Scripture and listened to. Help us to perceive Your nearness in greater ways. Help us to become aware of your presence. Help us not to create our own theology that we've stared down a narrow straw looking for the presence of God and in not finding it, we've assumed there isn't anything to pursue and we've stopped pursuing. God, when the flaw was with our ability to perceive your presence and be aware that you exist outside of the straw. You are scattering your presence all over our lives. 
It is here this morning that you want to encounter us in corporate ways. It was on the drive over. It was when someone lays hands on me and it's when I'm by myself with you. It is when I opened the word as Daniel did. And what leapt off the page was the 70 years is over. Oh God, how many others had read that same passage? But Daniel encountered you and he encountered your truth. Lord, when I read your word, at any moment, oh God, at any moment, in my desperation, in my difficulty, in my strain, in my anxiousness, at any moment, you might intrude and leap off the page into my heart and my life. And one phrase comes alive to me. My God, my all. My God, my all. And I sense you the sense of your presence and the aroma and the tasting of who you are breathes on my life a fresh sense of faith and trust in you. And I'm changed. And I face my life in a new way. Oh God, help us to take your presence out of the little jewelry box that we've placed it in. To see it in other places. To welcome it. To pursue it. Give us to pursuing your presence continually and encountering you in greater and greater and greater ways as you have desired for us to do that.
of the Lord. I'll say of the Lord, you are my shield, my strength. Yes, you are, Lord, my portion, deliverer, my shelter, strong tower, my very present help, my very present help. You are my very present help. You are my very present help in time of need. Lord, you are my very present help. I just had a sense from the Lord that there uh, would be folks here this morning who uh, are tempted to just kind of walk away. You have faced that battle. I believe the Lord wants to have your attention for a moment. So I read this passage to you. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That psalm is worthy of all reading, but let me just read a couple more passages quickly. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He goes on, the psalmist, and says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, these are words not taught by man, but encountered in the hearts by this man. And Lord, I pray this morning for those specifically who are here whose life has contained wearisome frustration. And there has been a temptation to just walk away. Lord, all that is remedied by an intrusion of you. Would you freshly intrude into these folks' lives who feel that way this morning? God, would you, would you make known your presence so that they might stand as well and say, Then I discerned. Then my mind became clear. My thoughts 
the interpretation of my life became accurate. Lord, we can't begin to see our lives correctly without your presence helping us. Lord, we ask for mercy and grace to surround everyone here who's experiencing a temptation to just want to walk away. God, remind them and manifest yourself to them. And what will happen as they emerge from this season is they will be more and more convinced that on earth there's nothing I desire. But in my God, I have all that I need and his nearness to me is my good. Do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.